outline. It should say a prophet is called. We are starting the book of Jeremiah today. We will be here for a little while. Uh, Jeremiah is uh, a fascinating book, alternately uh, uh, filled with hope and then words of judgment and despair, and it sort of goes back and forth. So you're never quite sure what's going to come at you at one time. But it is remarkably, um, it's obviously written about Jeremiah's time, but there are times we'll be going through when it'll seem like it is written about our time. And I think one of the great uh, times to go through it, because it is remarkably current for being a book that's some 2,600 years old. So let's turn to Jeremiah's towards the back of the Old Testament. If you get to the Minor Prophets, all those little 12 little books at the end, you'll want to back up and uh, you'll see Jeremiah and Lamentations. So I'll give you a moment to find those, and we're going to read the first 10 verses today. We haven't done a, one of the major prophets in a while. You'd have to go back to Daniel the last time we did one of the major prophets. Um, so, Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, Behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We always need it. We need to know that everything that we need for faith and practice what to believe and how to live comes from the mouth of the Lord. We need to know that when your word is open before us, it is the word of the Lord. Thank you that Jeremiah is a prophetic book that builds our faith and gives us hope because it's built on the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah and through him to us. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through your word this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. So much of our culture today is based on newness. New is better. 
You, you always want the latest and greatest thing. So every time there's a new iPhone released, it has everyone buzzing because it will have new technology. The new soda machines in the restaurants now present us with dozens of new flavors, and you can mix and match, which I do, and drive some of my family and friends nuts. Um, car manufacturers rolling out new models all the time. We have a constant opening of new restaurants, and most of our old restaurants are rolling out new dishes. Sports teams have new logos, the fashion industry sets the pace for new fashions, and on and on and on it goes. By and large, our culture surfs these marketing waves with great enthusiasm. However, the church is sort of an odd tree in this forest called the world. We are a people who are to seek and be satisfied with the ancient. Jeremiah 6.16 is a key verse in this book. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. God has clearly revealed himself in the scriptures, prescribing the path for obedience and rest. And the amazing thing about this path is that it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed for years. It hasn't changed for centuries. And I marvel to think that the path which the church walks on today is the same for all believers of all times uh, that they've walked. God has not changed the need and nature of obedience and rest. And that point was driven home for me this week as I was studying the book of Jeremiah, getting ready for this sermon series. And I was struck by the fact that the pastoral job description is today as it has ever been, to remind people of the ancient paths. At the same time, I wonder why and how, I don't wonder so much why, people have set aside the directions for walking in the ancient paths in favor of anything that is newer and cooler. And uh, honest confession, I once tried the fads at one point in my career. One day I just woke up and realized none of this works. But churches still try whatever is the newest and coolest thing to do. One church recently advertised for a new pastor by stating they just wanted him to preach the sermons of other more famous pastors. So that's what they, they didn't want him to actually write any sermons, you know, just preach the famous guys. Another church is having a new series uh, starting today on wrestling, featuring four famous professional wrestlers. I searched their website, I could find no reference to any scripture for that series. A third church is bringing in wild animals from the zoo to use as sermon illustrations which is all well and good, I guess, until the lion gets loose in the congregation. That could be a problem. When your child protection policy says, please don't feed the bears, you got some serious issues. Those are all true things I found online. But it's a shocking indictment of both the appetite of Christians and the meals prepared by pastors when we consider that the demand on pastors today is to share an easier message and employ other means that are far more attention-getting instead of just biblical preaching. As a church, we should not be waiting for the next program or the next fad to come out. 
we should be content with the faith that Jude tells us is once for all delivered to the saints. And if you think about it, it's actually good and kind of God to provide us uh, with his word, revealing his ways and the ancient paths that we might walk in them. Now, all of that sounds good so far, but we'll come to see over and over again that the people of Jeremiah's day didn't like the ancient paths any more than people like them today. Because when the Lord told them to walk in the ancient paths, they replied the end of Jeremiah 6.16, but they said, we will not walk in it. Now, we don't have to guess what God would say about this, because this is a period of biblical history which parallels our own time. The books of Jeremiah and Lamentation show how God looks at a culture which knew him and then deliberately turned away. And it's not just the character of Jeremiah's day. It's my day. It's your day. And if we're going to help our day, then our perspective has to be somewhat that of Jeremiah. And so this, since this is the first sermon in this series, we need to take a few moments getting to know Jeremiah. Now, in his painting of Jeremiah in the Sistine Chapel in Rome, and I have a slide for that somewhere. I don't know who's got the clicker. There we go. And do we have the slide for the painting? Okay. You're going to have to go find it. It's worth the wait. It's Rembrandt. So, I mean, it's, it's, or no, I'm sorry, it's Michelangelo. I replaced Rembrandt with Michelangelo. They both have great Jeremiah paintings. But this is going to be the Michelangelo one, I think, maybe. Hey, there he is. Jeremiah is a happy guy. <laughs> Michelangelo, I think, actually depicts him accurately. This is on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And he depicts him as a prophet, as a man of great strength whose right shoulders weighed down with a grievous burden. As you look past Jeremiah's stooped shoulder, there's a tragic figure of a woman is visible there. She bears the look of deep despair. And beyond the left shoulder, there's a different figure. It's a face of a young man. He's peering off into the distance. And uh, if you could, if we had a brighter picture, you would see he had a bright glow to his face. He's as if he's looking forward to something. Michelangelo is trying to capture the message of the book of Jeremiah that there's two great emphasis to this book. On the one hand, there's a message of judgment to an unrepentant people. And on the other hand, there are these constant reassuring words of hope. Jeremiah proclaimed his words of fire, and that's how they're described in the book, in the midst of a river of tears. He's indeed a reluctant prophet who tried to escape his call, first because of his youth and later because of continuous rejection and disbelief, because his life and his message rubbed like sandpaper against the world. And Michelangelo presents him in this posture of despair. He looks like a man who's wept so much he has no more tears to shed. His face is turned to one side like a man who's received the blows of many troubles. His shoulders are hunched forward, weighed down by the sins of Judah. 
His eyes are cast down as if he can no longer bear to see God's people suffer. And his hand covers his mouth. He has nothing left to say. Jeremiah labored as God's prophet for over 40 years. From 627 B.C. to sometime after 586 B.C. We're not sure of the exact date. It appears he was there approximately 42 years. Now, four decades is a long time to be a weeping prophet. Jeremiah lived when Israel was tossed among three superpowers, Assyria to the north, Egypt to the south, Babylon to the east. And he served and suffered through the administration of seven kings, including three major kings. First one was Josiah, who was the great reformer. Then Jehoiakim, who was just an evil despot. And then Zedekiah, who's known as the blind puppet. He wasn't blind to the end of his rule. He decided he didn't want to be the puppet anymore, so they plucked out his eyes. So just. And Jeremiah was there for all of it. He's a prophet in what you might call the, the winter of Judah's life as a nation, right up to the time God's people are deported to Babylon. Jeremiah is constantly warning the kings of Judah that the fall of Jerusalem is not just uh, the result of a military campaign. It is the consequence of the rebellion of a covenant people who have turned away from God. So we can... Jeremiah is a hard book to read. I don't think it's the most difficult book in the Bible. I think that's Ezekiel. But one reason it's hard, it's the longest book in the Bible. There's other books that have more chapters, uh, the Psalms, Isaiah. There are other books that have more verses, Genesis and Isaiah. But there are no other books that have more words than Jeremiah. Jeremiah has a lot to say. Now, Jeremiah is also a hard book because of this contrasting message, the back and forth of judgment and restoration. And it's a hard book because there's also no definite order or arrangement. And at times it's repetition, and sometimes it appears to be incomplete. Not every story gets finished. Furthermore, the book seems to contain different kinds of sort of literary materials. There's poetic oracles, uh, uh, similar to the other Old Testament prophets. There's historical episodes from the life of Jeremiah, often told in the third person, which is kind of unusual. And then there's a bunch of sermons that he gave, which may or may not be related to the poetry or the history they just had. So it's, an, it's ranged actually by theme, not by chronology or not by any sort of rational order that we would recognize. And then finally, it is intensely personal. We get to hear Jeremiah's inner anguish over his people. He's never isolated from the problems and hurts of his own day. Every judgment he brings against them, he applies to himself. He says, if this judgment of God happens to you, it will also happen to me. If you go to exile, I go to exile, that kind of thing. There's very few individuals in the Bible who disclose their own wounds and their own sufferings as much as Jeremiah. And through his complaints, loneliness, pain, and hurt, Jeremiah pours out his inner life, reveals both his weakness 
and his strength. Now, for 42 years, Jeremiah preached in Judah. He's trying to awaken the nation to what's about to happen to it, to get them to turn around, to save the nation from the judgment of God. And in all those 42 years, never once does he get any sign of encouragement. Never once is he able to change the course of this nation, which is moving headlong towards its own destruction. Never once did he see any sign that what he was saying had any impact at all upon these people. And yet he's faithful to his task. Through all his sorrow and struggle and heartache and difficulty and danger, he just kept doing what God told him to do. And in so doing, he leaves this tremendous record of the greatness of God, the power of God over the nations, the power of God over his control over history, and the hope which arises out of darkness. So what does God say? Finally, let's get to our text. We'll start with verses 1 through 5 and a word from the Lord. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the, days, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So the first three verses seem pretty boring. But they give us some valuable information. We're given his family background. We discover that Jeremiah is a priest and the son of a priest. He was what today we would call a PK, a preacher's kid. There's lots of stories about preacher's kids. You know why preacher's kids are so bad? Because they hang out with elders and deacons' kids. So, Anyway, he's a PK. He's growing up in a town where only priests live. It's a small town, Anathoth, one of the cities of Benjamin. It's just outside of Jerusalem. And his father's name is Hilkiah. Well, we know from 2 Kings that Hilkiah, we think it's the same guy, because it's the same time period, in the days of Josiah, Hilkiah was the high priest, and Josiah was the last good king. So we have the, the, this story of Hilkiah. In the book of 2 Kings, chapter 22, tells us Hilkiah the priest is sort of rummaging around in the back rooms of the temple, sort of in the storage rooms, and he's looking through all the old records that have just sort of been dumped there over the years, And underneath a lot of dusty old ledgers, he found a scroll. And he brought it out, cleaned it off, and began to read it. And to his amazement, he discovered it was the law of Moses. The nation had fallen so far, the law had actually been lost and forgotten. And so this priest, Hilkiah, he reads it, and he is stunned by what he reads. So he takes it to King Josiah, who is also astonished by it, and the king is frightened that the wrath of God was about to be poured out on them because they haven't kept the law. And so he, got the king makes a covenant before the Lord to keep the commandments and takes away the idols, and he begins what is really the last national reformation that Israel experiences before the exile. 
And Josiah is known as the last good king because the law was discovered and it appears that it's Jeremiah's father who discovered it. We don't know that 100% because it turns out Hilkiah is somewhat of a common name. Um, but it appears we know he was a priest in the same time and most scholars think it was the same guy. Why is that important? Well, these verses also set the historical background. They give us uh, the where and the when of the book. And so it lets us know the northern kingdom of Israel has already been carried off into exile. Ten tribes never to be heard from again. They disappear from the pages of history. That's already happened. So you have two tribes left, Benjamin and Judah, the southern kingdom of uh, Judah, and um, that's all that's left. And so Jeremiah comes to Judah. It hasn't been sent into exile yet, but it's coming. We know it's coming. And the reform that started under Hilkiah the high priest and Josiah the king is soon going to die out. And the spiritual decline of God's people is going to accelerate. And one way of thinking about this book is uh, that God, the covenant maker, has filed a lawsuit against his people for being covenant breakers, and he has now appointed Jeremiah as the prosecuting attorney. So Jeremiah is the guy who's going to stand up and say, you're breaking the covenant. And he's going to say it over and over and over again. But then we find in verses 4 and 5, there's this amazing call of God on his life. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Those are really important verses, those two verses. And one is it shows us the preparation of God. The remarkable thing is this preparation began long before Jeremiah was born. In other words, God is saying, I started getting you ready and getting the world ready for you long before you were born. I worked through your father and mother. I worked through your grandfathers and your grandmothers, your great-grandfathers and your great-grandmothers. For generations I have been preparing you. It's a remarkable revelation that through the generations of the past, God had already begun to work. And I also think it's interesting, you know, when we face a crisis today, people look for a program or some method with which to attack the crisis. But that's not usually what God does. When there's a crisis among God's people and he sets about to solve the crisis, he almost always starts with a baby. There's nothing very impressive about a baby, but that's God's way of changing the world. And that's what God's saying to Jeremiah. I've been working before you were born to prepare you to be a prophet, working through your father and your mother and those who were before them. God prepares for a child long before that child is born. It's a wonder of the way God uh, forms life. Each one, each child is prepared by God for the time in which he or she is to live. And God did wonderful things for Jeremiah before he was even born. He knew him. He formed him. He set him apart. He appointed him as a prophet. He did all this long before Jeremiah drew his first breath or shed his first tear, which may have happened at the same time. And so the, this call, these two verses are really key 
verses and showing us the sovereignty of God. And there's four big lessons we get out of these verses. First of all, God is the Lord of life. We see that God formed Jeremiah in the womb. Obviously, he had biological parents, but God fashioned him and knit him together in his mother's womb. Telling children who ask where babies come from, they come from God, is good theology. And it's not bad science either. The Lord of life uses the natural processes he designed to begin life in the womb. Second thing we say is a fetus is a person. Not everybody in our world would agree with that statement. But a person is a human being created in the image of God, living in relationship to God. This verse testifies that the personal relationship between God and his child takes place in the womb or even earlier. Birth is not our beginning. Conception is not our beginning. In some indescribable way, God has personal knowledge of an individual that precedes conception. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It's an amazing statement. I knew you. It's a beautiful thing that God says to his children. I loved you and cared for you in eternity past. I made a personal commitment to you even before you were born. And that's a wonderful thing for parents to tell their children and their grandchildren, God knows you, God loves you, and God has entered into a relationship with you. This verse also, I think, holds special comfort for mothers who've had miscarriages. It gives hope to parents who've lost children in infancy, even for women who've suffered through abortions. God knew your child, and God knows your child. And that's a great comfort that the sovereignty of God brings to families, but particularly to moms. Third, we don't choose God before God chooses us. If you want to know who you are, you have to know whose you are. For the Christian, that answer to that question is you belong to Jesus. When did Jeremiah start belonging to God? When did God choose him? The prophet is set apart before he's born. While Jeremiah is being carried around in his mother's womb, God's making preparations for his salvation and his ministry. To set something apart is to sanctify it, to dedicate it to holy service. So long before Jeremiah was born, God chose him and consecrated him for ministry. God is sovereign. He not only forms his people in the womb, he sets them apart for salvation from all eternity. And God's choice is not unique to Jeremiah. It's true for every believer. It's known as the doctrine of divine election. And Jesus said in John chapter 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. The Apostle Paul reminds us, Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. This promise is for the whole church. Therefore, it's for the comfort of every Christian. God not only knows you, he chose you, and he did so long before you were born. Eugene Peterson is one of my favorite writers. He's very quirky, 
Not everybody is enamored with him, but I like writers who make me think, and he always makes me think. And he was a wonderful pastor and eventually uh, became a professor. Some of you are familiar with the message, a paraphrase of the Bible. He wrote that. And he wrote a book on Jeremiah. And in it, he offers these practical conclusions about God's choice of Jeremiah. And he says, my identity does not begin when I begin to understand myself. There is something previous to what I think about myself, and it is what God thinks of me. That means that everything I think and feel is by nature a response, and the one to whom I respond is God. I never speak the first word. I never make the first move. Jeremiah's life didn't start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's salvation didn't start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's truth didn't start with Jeremiah. He entered the world in which the essential parts of his existence were already ancient history. And so do we. God is at work in every person. Sometimes we just have a hard time seeing it. Finally, we see every Christian has a calling. And biblically, there's two types of calling. There's a general call to believe in Christ. But everyone who believes in Christ, there's also a special call to some particular sphere of obedience and ministry. And that varies for every person. So Jeremiah is not just set apart for salvation. He's set apart for his vocation to be a prophet. God has work for him to do. And the prophet had a mission to accomplish and a message to deliver. And Jeremiah's unique appointment is to be a prophet to the nations. God intended his ministry to be international in scope. And part of Jeremiah's job is to promise God's grace to everybody else, to all the nations. And it says Jeremiah 3, at that time Jer Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. But to be a prophet to the nations also includes announcing God's judgment. And by the time he reaches the end of his ministry, Jeremiah has pronounced the divine sentence of judgment on every single nation, from Ammon to Babylon. And just as nations receive God's sovereign grace, so those nations are also subject to God's judgment. Jeremiah's calling is not for everyone. Jeremiah's calling is not necessarily your calling. The first chapter of Jeremiah is about his call for his times, not your call for your times. But you do have a call. God not only knows you and chose you, he's put a call on your life. The great 19th century preacher F.B. Meyer put it this way, from the foot of the cross where we are cradled in our second birth to the brink of the river where we lay down our armor, there is a path which he has prepared for us to walk in. Of course, the Bible says much the same thing, Ephesians 2.10, for we, as, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, you might think with the call of God being so obvious, Jeremiah would be eager to get started. Let's go, God. It's not what happens. Instead, he gives a very reluctant response. A reluctant response. Verse 6. Jeremiah has two main objections to becoming a prophet. His lack of eloquence and his lack of experience. It says, then I said, ah, Lord God. 
I don't know, if I was talking directly to God, I mean, it just sounds a little condescending. I don't think that's probably how I would say that. But he says, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. I mean, it's, it's something like, wait a second, Lord. About this whole prophet to the nations thing, that doesn't sound like such a great idea to me. I mean, prophecy is not one of my spiritual gifts. You know, I'm getting a C in rhetoric at the synagogue. And besides, I'm just a teenager. Jeremiah's response is to shrink from the call of God. And there's many young men who've done that both before and since. It's what Moses did and Gideon did and Isaiah did and almost all the other mighty men of God. When God first laid hold of them and sent them to a task, they shrink from it. And Jeremiah pleads youth and inexperience, says he has no ability to speak, which is exactly what Moses said. And apparently lots of people in the Bible have said that when God showed up. And they were like, hey, you've got the wrong guy. After all, who feels adequate to respond to God's call? Often we're too young or too old, too timid or too brash, too sinful or too rigid, too inarticulate or too talkative, too weak or too forceful, too busy or too lazy, possessed of any of a dozen other inadequacies. But God's call to serve him brings a promise of God's presence. And God answers Jeremiah with the giving of a promise, starting at verse 7. The giving of a promise. It says, But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. God's answer to Jeremiah is what it has been to every other young man who felt this way. Go, for I am with you. Don't worry about your voice, your looks, your personality, your ability. I will be with you. I will be your voice. I'll speak through you. I'll give you the words. I'll give you the power to stand. I'll give you the courage. I'll be your wisdom. I'll be whatever you need. Whatever demand is made on you, I'll be there to meet it. Now you and I hopefully recognize that essentially this is the new covenant that Jesus makes with us. This is what he promises us. That he will be with us in just the same way. The promise which encouraged Jeremiah is the same promise that's handed out to you and me in the gospel. That wherever we are, whatever demand is made upon us, do not be afraid. Most common command in the Bible, do not be afraid. Do not shrink back. Don't say, I can't do it. Remember that God says, I will be with you and I will make you able to do it. God doesn't disqualify Jeremiah on the basis of his youth and inexperience. In fact, he treats him the same way he treated Moses. He didn't deny uh, his objection. He doesn't argue with Jeremiah about his speaking credentials or quibble with him about his age. Jeremiah has reasonable doubts. But God exposed his false humility for what it really is, a lack of faith. Jeremiah had forgotten that God's not limited by our weaknesses. God himself possesses everything that Jeremiah needs to answer his call. In fact, enabling weak tools, weak people, 
to do strong jobs is God's standard operating procedure. His entire workforce is composed of dubious candidates. That would be us. And when God calls someone to do a job, he gives him or her all that they need to get the job done. And so the Lord responds to Jeremiah. Regarding his youth, the Lord encourages him to fulfill his call and promises that his presence will be with him. Regarding his inability to speak, the Lord responds. He alludes to two powerful passages in verse 9. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. The Lord stretches out and touches the lips of Jeremiah, which reminds us, hopefully, of Isaiah 6, where the prophet Isaiah's lips were consecrated by an angelic figure who touches them with burning coals. And although Jeremiah's experience differed in that the Lord, not an angel, touched his lips, the two encounters seem to be clearly related. The second passage is Deuteronomy 18.18, where the Lord says, I will raise up, he's talking about uh, Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, or I'm sorry, about Joshua, a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So he's showing us, he's speaking to Moses there, and he's showing us the prophetic ministry of Jeremiah is in the same tradition of Isaiah and Moses. The word of the Lord will encompass all of the law and the prophets. Deuteronomy 18 demonstrates the prophets don't speak their own words, but rather the very words of God. And it's the same understanding of this word that is placed in the mouth of Jeremiah. And the success of his ministry depends not on his own abilities, his own strength, his own eloquence, but on knowing the presence of the Lord, and clearly articulating his words. And the Lord's response provides the proper perspective for Jeremiah as he begins what's going to be a very, very difficult prophetic task. It's not easy for Jeremiah to speak God's words. His commission is not only dangerous, it's depressing. We've already been given a clue uh, in this passage, that the book is not going to have a happy ending. In that timeline back in verse 3, it said, until the captivity. This will end with the people of Jerusalem being sent into exile. The book of Jeremiah is a tragedy, not a comedy. It's about the unraveling of a nation. It's a sad story of the decline of God's people from faith to idolatry as a nation and ultimately to exile. And it's this decline that makes Jeremiah a prophet for post-Christian times. He lived in a time very much like our own when people no longer think that God matters for daily life, where public life is increasingly dominated by pagan ideas and rituals. The spiritual problems we face in 2018 are remarkably similar to those that Jeremiah found depressing 2,600 years ago. And the discouragement of his ministry is evident in how God describes it, verse 10, the last verse there. He says, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The prophet's job description includes six tasks, and four of them are negative. Two to one, his words to the nation are words of judgment. To pluck up is to dig up nations by the roots and turn them over. 
It's a word that Jeremiah uses more than all other biblical writers combined, often to describe the uprooting of idols and idolatry. To break down is to tear down a standing structure like knocking down a wall or toppling a tower. To destroy is to demolish, to bring to complete ruin, and to overthrow is to be removed from power, often with violence. And once the Lord plucks up, breaks down, destroys, and overthrows a nation, there's not much left. And there's a great deal of that kind of judgment in Jeremiah. This verse is not only Jeremiah's job description, it's a summary of the book. He lives in such evil days that judgment will outnumber grace two to one. But grace gets the last word. When the cities of evil have been torn down and plowed under, God starts anew. He'll begin a new work. He will build and he will plant. He will bring renewal out of demolition. It's God's plan for the kingdoms of this world. He's the one who's in charge of the beginning and ending of history. He's the one who uproots some nations and plants others. He's the one who tears down some kingdoms and rebuilds others. Uh, It's also God's plan for salvation in Christ. Jesus said, John 2, destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. The temple of Jesus' body was uprooted and torn down from the cross. It was destroyed and overthrown to the grave, but God built and planted resurrection life into the body of Jesus Christ. And now God builds and plants that same resurrection power into the life of every believer. First, the Holy Spirit uproots and tears down sin in your heart and then plants faith and builds obedience into your life. And like Jeremiah, we were all reluctant at some point in the beginning. And yet God has known you from all eternity and has set you apart for life in Christ. I started out this morning by talking about babies. You know, it's taken for granted that we name our babies. That's actually very important. You know, at birth, we're named. We're not numbered. The name is in the way that we're recognized as a person. We're not classified as a species or an animal. We're not labeled as a compound of chemicals. We're not assessed for our economic potential and given a cash value. We are named. And on the day that their son was born, Hilkiah and his wife named him in anticipation of the way that God would act in his life. And hope they saw the years unfolding and they saw their son as one in whom the Lord would be lifted up. Jeremiah, the Lord is exalted. When all you see in front of you is judgment, the naming of a baby is a lever of hope. And entering a world of judgment, much like our own, Jeremiah preached, the Lord is exalted. And so hope became his mission. And of course, Jeremiah was born in a small, out-of-the-way, little-known and long-forgotten town of Anathot, which means answer to prayer. Think about that. You should pray now. You may need some answers. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior.
Heavenly Father, we confess to you that we are reluctant followers. We don't think we're enough on our inadequacies stand out in every way. Give us a greater desire to know your word, to know that it's powerful in and of itself, that it's relevant to every situation of our lives, and to believe that it comes from your hand. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for trusting in our own fears. Work in us this year as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees, as we hear what he hears. Teach us how to respond with repentance. Draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.